magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you G'day everybody, it's Warwick Schiller and welcome back to the podcast. This one is podcast number two and if you've listened to podcast number one, you would have heard the story I talked about a horse at a clinic in Texas that was a big turning point for me and it was the story about the Mustang that laid down and you know that made a huge impact on me and I want to talk a little bit more about you know why that horse did that thing and um what we can learn from that. So, you know, you think about horses are a social creature. Okay? They live in herds. They, they evolved on, uh, you know, they evolved on wide open plains. That's why they have the big long nose so they can eat grass and still have their eyes above the level of the grass to see predators coming. If their eyes were a lot, a lot, if their head was a lot shorter, if they had their nose on the ground, they wouldn't be able to see predators coming. So that's why they got the long nose. But they're they're a social creature, so they live in herds. You know, they're, they're mammals. And if you think about one of the things, or probably the one thing that that the herd provides, that sense of security that the herd provides, we understand that. Like if you go out in a pasture, there's, you know, six horses out there. You catch one of them and lead him down the road away from that pasture full of horses there's quite a quite a bit quite a possibility that that horse may be winning and running around you if everybody's seen somebody have trouble with that and if you think about it what does he want to get back to why does he want to get back to his friends what is it that we don't offer that those friends do and you know the the horse I mean the horse. The herd gives the horse a sense of security, but, but what is it about this, the herd that gives them that sense of security? Uh, there's some horses in the herd who uh, work out and go to the gym and take karate classes, and they're going to protect us if the bad guys come along. Is that what the safety of the herd is? Actually, it's not. What I believe the real safety of the herd is, is the awareness of the herd, the group awareness of that herd. And if you think about, you know, if there's six or seven horses standing out there in a herd somewhere, the one that's on the west side doesn't need to keep an eye out for what's on the east side, okay, or the north side, or the south side. He's got his own bit he's looking at, but if if there's something that needs to be looked at, something concerning that needs to be looked at, you'll find that the you know, let's say something approaches from the east, the one on the east side will start to get a bit concerned and and through his body language and his energy, that will transmit through the whole herd. And a few years ago, my son Tyler and I, we went to um, Kenya. I went to Kenya in South Africa to do some horse work. I had some clinics in South Africa, but when I went to Kenya, we just visited this one lady, you know, we... uh, we basically swapped out, traded me helping her with the horses for a few days and them taking us on safari for a few days. But her name was Monica, a lovely lady, and she lived just about an hour south of Nairobi. And oh, it's on the, the highway that goes from Nairobi to Mombasa. And she bought that place about 20 years ago. 
There was a developer that bought 500 acres there and he had it subdivided into five acre lots and his whole idea was he was going to get the power, you know, city power and water on there and then sell the lots uh, to people who wanted to live there. And uh, this lady, Monica, she bought a lot earlier on before the power and the water actually came on and it turned out they didn't come on. And so because of that, not many people built there. And so Monica, you know, she lives... She's got a little five-acre block, but it's in 500 acres of land that hasn't been developed at all. There's only, I think there's three or four other houses there. And then that's surrounded by 3,000 acres of undeveloped land. So basically, she's got a lot of, I wouldn't call it wilderness, but there's a lot of wildlife around her. So she built this beautiful stone house. It looks like something out of the movie Out of Africa. It's a two-story stone house. And she has solar power and collects rainwater. And that's that's your house water, and you know it's it's funny if there's Australians listening to this, you, you know all about rainwater. But um, you know, I grew up on rainwater, which means you know we lived out of town, so the house and the garage collected rainwater in these big rainwater tanks, and that's what you shower with, that's what you drink, and it's absolutely amazing. I remember the first time my wife went to Australia with me, we were at mum and dad's place, and she washed her hair, and she came out, and she goes, my hair's never felt this good in my entire life. And, uh, you know, it's just so normal to Australians, and obviously South Africans, because Monica had it on there too, but I was on a plane here in America a couple of years ago, and I was reading the in-flight magazine, and there was an article about 20, the 20 top new green ideas to have greenhouses, to have environmentally friendly houses in America. These great, 20 great ideas, and one of them was collecting rainwater off the roof. I mean, we've been doing that in Australia for as long as I can remember now, you know, since the beginning of Australia, really. And so here we are at Monica's, and she's got this beautiful place out there. And there's a lot of wildlife around there. There's a lot of zebra, there's a lot of wildebeest, uh, you could go for not that bigger walk and see some giraffe. I actually saw a giraffe. I, my bedroom was on the second floor, and I actually saw a giraffe from the bedroom window one morning. And that doesn't mean a giraffe walked up and stuck his head in the bedroom window and I fed him an apple or something like that. He was quite a ways off in the distance through the trees, but I could see a giraffe from my bedroom window. And what I noticed about – so Tyler and I would, would go for a walk quite a bit from the house. You know, we'd get up early and before breakfast we'd go for a walk because you could walk, you know – not very far, you know, maybe metres, maybe four or 500 metres from the house, uh, which is probably, you know, 800 to 1,000 feet from the house, and you'd come across a herd of zebra. They were, they were very, very, very close. And so we got to observe them quite a bit. And what I noticed about those zebra was if they're all grazing, you know, there's a big herd of them grazing, and you approach from, say, the western side... The one on the western side, he's the first one that sees you. And you might be quite a way off. You might be, oh, six or 800 metres. You know, you might be 1,500 feet or so away from them before and when they when they notice you. So their, their bubble's pretty big, you know. But you'd walk along and let's say you approach from the west. The one on the western side, he'd see you coming and his head would pop up to look at you. And then you'd see the head next to him pop up and the head next to him pop up. And then from the western side of the herd across to the, the eastern side of the herd, the heads would all pop up slowly. 
but there was no sound made. And so I really think this is part of a horse's natural communication is their body language, what they're doing with their body, and their internal energy. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, the first zebra that saw us, his head popped up, so his body language changed, and then his internal energy changed. He got changed. He got some tension about him, and that tension rippled through that herd of zebra across to the other side. And you would have felt this if you've ever been in a crowded atmosphere and a fight breaks out, like you're at a, you could be in a bar, you could be at the bar, like a horse show or rodeo or whatever, you know, <laughs> I don't think it would happen at the dressage, but, <laughs> uh, you know, you're in a crowded area and somewhere across the room, a fight breaks out. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's talking and it's loud, but all of a sudden that loud noise and the energy of the room changes and it kind of ripples through the room and all of a sudden everybody realizes hey there's something going on over there that's not just general loud talking and drinking and and carrying on and i think it's a bit like that with the with the horses and with the zebra and you know what i noticed was if you were very aware of when that first one became aware of you like when his head pops up and you just stop you don't keep moving which means his tension doesn't rise that those heads popping up might not make it all the way across the herd, if you get what I mean there. If you kept walking, his head would pop up and he'd get tense and then all the other heads would pop up. And if you keep walking straight towards them, they'll turn and trot off somewhere. And they do that funny trotting along where they're looking back behind them. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, they trot, donkeys do that a bit. And I, you know, they're both very good at kicking. And I wonder if that's got something to do with it. But instead of running, looking forward, they kind of get their head bent back. But uh, if you didn't get to that point to where they didn't run off and you stood there for a while they you know they eventually the one on the western side the one closest to you his level of tension would go back down and he's the one who can see the danger and his head would go back down and eventually all their heads would go back down and they'd go back to eating again and it was really really interesting because the zebra also when you know we talked in the first episode about horses needing to have REM sleep or zebras need REM sleep too and you'd find that others would be standing up at the same time. So they don't all lay down and sleep together. Some of them lay down, but I noticed that when any of them were laying down sleeping, the others didn't graze. The others were standing up and aware. They weren't alert, but they were aware. And so, and the reason they're not alert, because if they were alert and standing like really tense, like a guard sort of thing, like on the lookout, um, the ones laying down probably wouldn't be able to sleep well because they've got that 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 sense of tension in the air. And but those ones would be standing around one foot cocked, their, their tail swishing flies and kind of half relaxed. But if you approach them, whatever distance it was, you know, if you approach them from a, a distance and when they the first one sees you and his head pops up, the ones that's standing, of course, and you stop right there, you notice that the the ones on the ground kind of stir a little bit, like they kind of notice that that head pops up and they feel that little bit of tension in the air and then if you can stand where you were like don't go any closer or even retreat but you can you can definitely do it standing there you stand there after a while the ones who were looking at you like oh he's not a threat and they their heads drop down just a little bit and they go back to kind of being relaxed you you notice that those ones on the ground they let go again so it's 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 important you know that the group awareness is important not just for, for grazing but also for sleeping too. And 
There were also, we were working with some horses there. There was a wilder, a male wildebeest that, that lived just outside the fence from where we were. And wildebeests are, they're known as a, a brindle gnu. So they you know, gnu. Um, they're, they're known as a brindle gnu and they're named after the noise they make because the, you know, the, the noise they make apparently is gnu. But I actually think it sounds like meh. Like meh, meh, meh. They just go. If you've ever seen wildebeests in a cartoon, and they, they have them when they go meh, 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 meh. That's what it's like. If there's when there's a herd of them around, that's all they do. Anyway, so these wildebeest males are territorial, and so they will mark out a territory. They've got a gland below their eye that secretes this smelly stuff, and they rub it on trees, and they basically mark out their territory, and. They'll allow another bull to come into their territory as long as he comes in with a lowered head. Like he says, yes, I'm submissive. If he comes in with his head high, they'll have a fight. But what the bull does is he has a territory and he waits for cows to come through there. And so the, the tougher a bull you are, obviously the better piece of real estate you'll have. You'll have some a piece of real estate that's got some good grazing and some good water. And the cows are going to come into the water, don't they? So, you know, you'd fight the other ones for it. I don't, there wasn't any water right there, so I don't think this one was the terribly good fighter. But what I noticed with this, so I think I mentioned male wildebeest are solitary. They don't, they don't keep a herd. The, herd the, the cows come and go. And this one didn't have a herd, so he was there on his own. And I noticed he would lay down. When he lays down to have a rest, he always laid down with his back up against a group of trees and he was laying on his belly. And one day the... Um, the zebra happened to come up to that area. And like I said, when the zebras sleep, the the ones that are sleeping are in the middle and the ones who are standing are on the outside. It's like a big circle. And so they actually made their circle right in the middle of this wildebeest territory. And so he marched right in there and plopped down the ground and went to sleep because he knew they were looking out for him. It was the first time I'd seen him lay down and, and sleep without having his back up against a tree. He, he had open ground behind him right there. Because he was he used to he usually uses the tree, but he was using the zebras to to help with that. So if you think about it, there. Once again, I'm trying to make the point here that I think a horse's sense of security relies on the awareness of the herd. Okay, we've got that, and so this brings me to the human part of this: is to where what we have to learn to do as humans is be very present when we're around our horses. That's probably the biggest thing you can do to help horses be relaxed. So this is not a technique. This is not something you do to the horse to get it to relax or you do with the horse to get it to relax. This is this is no interaction with the horse themselves. This is just us coming along and being present. And if you think about the story I told about the Mustang in the, in the first episode, why did he feel so relaxed? Because I noticed something little, you know, I noticed his head bent to the side when I went to walk down his side and I didn't, I was present enough to say, hey, yeah, I saw, I noticed that. I saw it. I'll step back and give you some time. That's the only thing I did with him. And like I said, three years later, he still has not bolted since. So he, he's got rid of his bolting issue just from that one little interaction. And I think quite possibly from Hannah, his owner's interaction with him since then. I mean, she's been probably more aware of little things like that and let him know that she's aware, which brings me to my the next thing I want to talk about, which is an old Ray Hunt saying in it, and the saying says they know when you know and they know when you don't. And 
I used to think that saying meant they know when you know what you're doing and they know when you don't know what you're doing. Basically, they can tell a beginner a mile off. You, you tell them a mile off whether you know what you're doing with horses or not. But then here is only several years ago now, I read an article by someone who was around Ray Hunt quite a bit, and I can't remember who it was. And he said, what that, he said, when you're around a horse, you need to be aware of what his ears are doing. You need to be aware of what his eyes are doing. You need to be aware of what his muzzle's doing, what his lips are doing, what his nostrils are doing, what his breathing's doing, what his feet are doing. Are they standing square or is he standing kind of offset and a bit braced? Is his tail up? Is his tail down? Is it relaxed? Is it tight? Is it clamped? Is his back tight? And you need to know all those things. You need to notice all that stuff because he knows when you know and he knows when you don't. So basically, your horse knows if you are present. That's 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 the the you know if you can get two big take homes right here. The first one is a horse's sense of security relies on the presence, the being present of the herd. And when we're around horses, if we are not present, they know. And so I think that's where a lot of anxiety with with horses comes in is people are around them and they're not terribly present. And I'm not picking on people. I, I struggle with it too. But it's like I've it's like I've come across the holy grail of, you know, this is beyond training. This has nothing to do with training a horse. This is not a training technique. This is a this is a way to be while you are doing whatever training technique you choose to use. And uh, so I've been, you know, I've been really excited about this for a while and if anybody's read a book called Animals in Translation by Temple Grandin so if you don't know who Temple Grandin is she is a um she has a PhD in maybe animal nutrition I think from Colorado State University but she um lectures a lot on all sorts of different subjects so um Temple Grandin is autistic they actually made a movie about her that Claire Dane starred in the movie Claire Dane starred as as Temple Grandin, and the movie was called Temple Grandin, and uh, you know, if you, in that book she was talking about being autistic, she said she doesn't think in words; she only thinks in pictures, and she said that a lot of autistic people are that way. Not all of them; a lot of people, autistic people, are that way. And she said, if you've ever noticed that autistic people seem to be really good with animals, and especially if you've ever seen like a dangerous horse or a dangerous bull or something or other, and it's in a pen somewhere, and it's like, don't ever go in there. And there's either a, a small child or an autistic person wanders in there and you think, oh my God, they're going to die and nothing happens. And, and the reason small child works is because you're pre, because before you are, when you're pre-verbal, when you, you don't have a a big vocabulary, um, you don't think in streams of words because you don't have the ability to do that. You, you think in streams of pictures. And so Temple Grandin talks about in that book how animals can basically get those pictures from our heads. And they can also, and she's not sure if they can hear it, but, you know, when, when you've got all that, that, when you've got all that, constant thinking in your head which i don't think autistic people do and i don't think pre you know young children do think about when you're a young child you're very present all the time for the most part think about when it's 
two weeks till Christmas. How long does Christmas take to come? It takes forever because you're aware of every ticking second. Whereas us these days, you know, it's now July and Christmas will be here before you know it. And we'll probably still be locked down by then. Who knows? But so, you know, they can they can basically horses can basically tell what you're thinking. And there's even a, there's even a group of people who actually can communicate with horses through mental pictures. I've I've heard of several people, oh, probably a number of people that can do it. There's one lady that I know of. Um, I've I don't I don't I've not seen her do it, but I've had a, a good friend of mine seen this happen to where she can get horses to do what she wants just by mentally picturing what she wants and wants them to do. And uh, the story I heard was they were, she was doing a clinic and she was trying to talk about this stuff, about mentally picturing what you want to happen and getting the horse to do it. And, and no one was really getting it, couldn't really do it. And anyway, they went to go and get some more horses and they walked down this dirt road between two lots of pastures. And on one side of the road was a field and it had, you know, say five horses in it and, Four of them were chestnuts and one of them was bay. And uh, she said, I'll get the bay horse to come over here. So she stood at the fence and just looked out there. And and after a while, that bay horse's head pops up and he looks around and looks over at her and walks straight over to the fence. And the other horses didn't even follow him. And so it's, it's, it's doable. So what we have to understand is that, yes, they can read your mind. Step one. Can you do that? Well, not many people can do that, you know. Uh, a lot of times at clinics, I will tell this story and I say, is there anybody here who can mentally picture what you want your horse to do and you get him to do it? And everybody kind of looks at their feet like, no, not me, I can't. And I said, are you sure there's nobody who can, is good enough at making mental pictures to make it so clear that you can get your horse to do what you want? And that, nope, nobody can do it. And so then I tell a story about, so a friend of ours from New Zealand named Jane Pike, and I think I mentioned her, I may have mentioned her in the first episode, I'm not sure. She is a equestrian mindset coach. She's a horse riding mental coach. And she uh, mostly helps people deal with fear-based issues, but she also does work with some competition people too. And she was actually our mental coach when my wife Robin and I represented Australia at the World Equestrian Games in 2018. She actually came to the World Equestrian Games with us. And uh, that her mental preparation, her, mental, her help with us was a big part of how well we went there. Uh, so... When we got back from the World of Grocery Games, Jane came back with us and she did a cultivating confidence clinic at our house the next weekend. And she said something then that was so profound. I've been talking about it ever since. But she said, you can't move away from something. You can only move towards something. And I kind of had a puzzled look, which I imagine you have right now. She said, what I mean is, she said, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of what I mean. She said, right now, I want you to, and I want you guys to do this listening at home. I want you to do this right now. I want you to not picture a big blue tree. And while you are not picturing a big blue tree, I want you to not picture some green grass at the front of that big blue tree. And while you're not picturing a big blue tree and not picturing some green grass, I want you to not picture a yellow bird at the top of the tree. And so now you're not picturing a big blue tree and you're not picturing green grass in front of it and you're not picturing a yellow bird sitting at the top of that big blue tree that you are not picturing. And what do you have in your head right now? Perfect picture of a big blue tree, green grass, yellow bird. Okay, that would be trying to move away from something. That would be 
trying to say, I don't want to think about a big blue tree. You cannot do that. You can only move towards something or you can only think of something. So right now, I want you to picture you're holding a basketball, a brand new basketball, and it's pumped up as tight as it can be pumped up. And so it's got orange, it's, you know, it's bright orange. It's got those little pimples all over it and it's pumped up really, really tight. And you can feel how pumped up it is. It's between your two hands. And while you're thinking about that, I want to ask you where your big blue tree's gone. The big blue tree has gone away. And so what? that's what Jane means by when she says you can't move away from something, you don't need to move towards something. You can't not think about something. You can only think about something. So you've got to choose to think about what you want and not what you don't want. And so usually at the, at the clinic when I, I say that, everybody's kind of nodding like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm, got that. So then she's, then what normally I will do at the clinics, I will say is, hey, has anybody here ever been trail riding? And a lot of people put their hands up. Almost everybody puts their hands up. And I said, anybody ever been trail riding on a cold day? And everybody starts nodding. And it's a bit windy. And everybody's nodding. And I say, and your horse feels a little bit fresh. And everybody's nodding. And I say, and you're riding along and, up the trail in front of you, there's a plastic bag or something that's blown into a bush from the wind, and it's a, it's hung up in the bush, but it's flapping towards the path where you want to walk past. Ever had something like that happen? And everybody nods, and I go, and does your, has your horse ever stopped and frozen and pricked his ears and looked straight at it and, and grew about two hands taller? And everybody's nodding, yes. And I said, right at that moment, have you ever looked at that bush and thought, oh my God, it's a plastic bag and it's going to spook him and he's going to spook off to the left and I'm going to fall off the right side and I'm going to break my collarbone. And I broke that when I was a kid and I wonder would an ambulance come up here? Would it be a helicopter? Yeah, it's, I don't know if there's any roads really come up here. So there's a field over there. The helicopter could land in that. And I hope, which hospital would I go to? I hope I go to that big one because there's a really good shoulder surgeon there. And then tomorrow, who's going to pick up my kids from school? I, I suppose I was going to make their lunch, but I could just give them some money. And then you know, and then I'm saying that and everybody sitting there is nodding, okay? And you were probably doing it right then. You've had those instances where things get a bit tense and all suddenly your mind goes and you, you, you're you seeing the worst case scenario. And right then what I do at the clinic, and I'll do it to you guys too, is I say, so about five minutes ago, I asked all you guys, can anybody here mentally picture what you want your horse to do and you can get your horse to do it? And you all said no. And then everybody starts laughing because they're like, they, are, they, they get that we are very, very good at picturing what we don't want, but not very good at picturing what we do want. Okay? So, you know, we've got to control our mind and stop our minds going off in those, you know, in those directions like that. And it's what's, in, I'll tell you what is what's really interesting is for a long time at clinics, I've always said, you know what, I'm not talented I know people who are talented, but uh, I'm not talented, but I do have a process. And if I stick to that process, I can, I can get some good results. And I um, was doing a, this was at a horse expo in New Zealand, and I was doing a, a, a talk, like I talked about yesterday, like a stand-up talk, so not a demonstration with a horse, but a talk in front of an audience. And I was doing it with Jane Pike. And we actually talked about that big blue tree thing right then. And sitting in the audience was a friend of mine who is a very, very talented horseman, okay, very talented. And I've always thought he's one of those guys that talented. I'm not, you know, I'm not talented, but I have a process. Whereas this guy, he's talented. And uh, he was sitting in the audience watching it. And so this guy does a lot of starting young horses 
at horse expos. And so, you know, in the three days of the horse expo, the first day he'll start, you know, working with it, do some groundwork with it. By the second day, he does some groundwork and gets it saddled. And the third day, he does some groundwork, gets it saddled, rides it. And usually they ride around not too bad. He's very, very good at it. And uh, he, he, it's just so easy for him. And he happened to be sitting in on our conversation, on our lecture about this big blue tree stuff. Anyway, then when we got done with our talk, he, you know, we finished and we were chatting with him and he said, oh, I've got to go, I've got to go start that colt. I said, oh, we'll come over and watch it in a minute. So he went over to where the round pen was and the thing and they bring the horse in and he starts to uh, go through the whole process of riding it for the first time. This is on day three, this is day three. So he's already had two days with it. And I went over and watched him and that night we were sitting around and it all went well. It was a bit shaky at times, but it all went well. And that night we're, him and I were sitting around having a couple of drinks and he said, hey, you guys messed me up today. And I was thinking because we went over and Jane and I went over and watched him get on this horse. You know, there's a whole crowd of people there, but, you know, I think when you sometimes when your peers show up, it, it can affect you. But anyway, so he said, you guys messed me up today. And I thought, we, we were just snuck off on the side. We didn't try to distract you or anything. And he said, no, no, when, when I listened to your talk, and I said, well, what was wrong with the talk? He said, well, when you were talking about that big blue tree stuff and thinking about things that could go wrong, I've never had those thoughts. I don't. It wasn't until you told me in that talk that people have them. Though. I didn't even know that people had those thoughts. And so then I went over and I was doing that cold start, and he was a bit funny, you know. And when I was getting on, right as I was getting on, he's think he said, "I started thinking things could go wrong. What if he bucks? What if I get hurt? What if all these people see me fall off?" And he said, "My mind started spinning." And so think about that. This guy does not think. Big blue tree thoughts. This guy only thinks orange basketball thoughts, which is why he's very good at what he does. And he's he's an amazing human being. He's a really good friend of mine. And he's one of those people you just love being around him because he's really positive and stuff. And now I know why, because he his mind doesn't work in uh, negative ways. And so if you really, you know, if you, th- you th- think about those two things, the, the basically the two principles I'm trying to get you to understand here is one is that in order for a horse to feel safe, he has to feel the, the security of the awareness, you know, the, the, the security provided by the awareness of the herd, which we can provide. So that's the first bit. Second bit you've got to understand is horses can read your mind. They can, they can um, tell what you're thinking, okay? They can tell what your energy's like. And, you know, when I first started inquiring about this whole mental picture thing there's a lady i know of i've met her a couple of times i don't know her well and she used to be around ray hunter a lot and she lives here in california and someone said that she does it and so i sent her a message on facebook messenger and i said hey i i'm, I'm looking into the possibility that people can get horses to do things from a mental picture and I'm also wondering, how would you teach somebody to do that? And her reply back to me, she says, well, it's kind of hard. Her reply was, it's kind of hard to explain for those of us to which it comes easy. And right then in her answer, I was just blown away that I learned two things. It's hard to explain. But the other part was the second part of it, to those of us to which it comes easy. Okay, I've, I've never actually met anybody who me but it's hard to explain to people and 
and now I know why, but so horses can basically, you can give them signals from your brain, so we know that. So what signals we're thinking, what things we're thinking about when we're around them is either going to make them more or less anxious. Okay, they can tell, they can also tell when we're present. If we're not present, and this is a big part of horses feeling anxious, if we are not present around them, we are telling them that we are not part of the herd. You cannot rely on us to be a lookout for you because we're in our head. We're thinking about what we had for lunch last Tuesday or something or other. And a lot of times, if you ever see someone leading a horse and the horse is winning with its head turned away from the person on the ground and running in circles around the person, and it just looks like a, you know, a belligerent horse or, you know, those those adjectives we, we give horses. They're disrespectful and all that sort of thing. But really what that is, it's just a horse who's running in circles, looking, he's nervous and he's looking out in every single direction because he's not just turning and pulling away from the, the handler in one direction. He's running in circles around, looking around. He's basically having a bit of a panic attack, but he's worried about what might be out there and he's running in circles looking out there for it. So you have to understand that what we bring to the table, what we, what we bring mentally and energetically is a huge part of of being really good with horses. And that's and I think that's where the whole thing becomes a bit of a self-development journey because you don't you don't learn to do that while you're working with a horse for the most part. Um, I said yesterday when I was doing the therapy, one of the things they talked about, which is one of the principles of training, is create a tool before you use a tool. And so I really think it's much easier to learn how to control what your mind thinks about when you are sitting on the couch for three minutes trying to meditate than it is not practicing that stuff and then you're riding down the trail and your horse, it's a cold day, it's wind's blowing, your horse stops, freezes, sticks his head in the air and right there you've got to make sure your mind only thinks positive thoughts. This is what I'm going to do instead of, oh my God. And that's that's really, really hard if you haven't practiced that in a, in a non-stressful situation. And the reason this stuff is so important you know, it kind of comes back to the the Mustang in the first podcast is that all our bad behaviors come from horses feeling anxious. And so you don't have to be a good trainer to fix the bad behaviors. All you have to do is be able to fix the anxiety that causes the bad behaviors. And part of that anxiety comes from us not being present when we're around horses. And I think there's two parts of that. One is they they can tell what you're thinking about. You know, they can tell if you're not present. They can tell if you're not if they're standing beside you and the mental picture they're getting from you is not what they can see, which means it's almost the same view as yours, you're thinking about what you had for lunch, you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. So the pictures in your head are pictures that are not going on right now. I think they can tell you're not present that way. So that's a good reason to be present. But the other one, and it's just as important, is when I went to walk down the side of that Mustang, if I had been thinking, if I had not been present, if I had been thinking, I'm going to go down to his hind end and disengage him because that's what the problem was. If you remember, I'm going to go to that hind end and disengage him and I'm thinking about the hind end and he puts his head in front of me and I would just walk around it because I'm not present. I'm just going to that hind end. And if that happens, you were telling that horse, I didn't even see that. And so then they don't feel that sense of safety. So it's so important that you can be really, really, really present. Like I said, for the one thing is, gives them that sense of security. But the other thing is, and this is where we're going to get really cool right here, the other part of it is you can start to notice little things when you're present. Like what I noticed with Cody when he turned his head, and there's a lot of little 
things that they do. Like I mentioned yesterday in that first podcast about a book I read about, you know, um, little indicators that horses will do with their eyes and ears and things that tell you that they're slightly concerned. You know, they might turn their eyes and look away from you without turning their head. And that's a big one I see a lot. And I call it a stress indicator to where a horse looks away from you, but his head doesn't turn or he turns his head away from you a little bit, but his eyes turn more than his head. That's not a horse looking at something. That's a horse looking away from you. That's a horse saying, whatever you're doing right now is too much. And when you notice those things, it lets them know how aware you are. And all this stuff has really started to make sense to me recently when I discovered polyvagal theory. So polyvagal theory was um, first introduced by Dr. Stephen Porges. And it has to do with the the nervous system of any mammal, you know, so I mentioned before about the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. So it turns out there is two branches of the parasympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic nervous system is all about downregulation or, you know, slowing things down. It's the, it's the, the brakes. And the sympathetic nervous system is the accelerator or, or speeds things up. And there's two parts to this parasympathetic nervous system, and this is the most amazing stuff. This, you know, I'm really late to the science. A lot of times, I tend to learn things with horses by doing it, and then later on, I learn there's a science behind why it happens. And this one is no different. And this really explains all the connection stuff to me. But so there's two brakes, two braking systems, two different types of parasympathetic nervous system. There's the dorsal vagal complex, so it's about the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the superhighway between your gut, your heart, and your brain. And there's two parts to it. There's the dorsal vagal complex and the ventral vagal complex. And they're both breaks. And the dorsal vagal complex is like the, the handbrake or the emergency brake in the car in a car. And the ventral vagal complex is like the regular brake in the car which is you know supposed to slam you're not supposed to slam it on you're supposed to put your foot on it slowly and slows you down the ventral vagal complex is the social engagement complex so when when horses feel socially engaged they are relaxed that slows everything down so that's that that's the one side the other side that's a bit like an emergency brake in the car is it's about immobility it's about being completely stopped. And if it's on lightly, like you would in a car when it was standing still, when, if it's on lightly, that's when your horse is standing around, he's in a social situation, he's standing around, he's laying down, he's grazing. Anytime he's immobile like that, that brake is slightly engaged. But if that brake gets, gets engaged really heavily, that's when they go into freeze mode. So they go into shutdown mode. And what I've learned is that Horses tend to, when they get a bit worried about something, the first thing they do is look for social engagement. They look for a friend, like, hey, can you help me out at all? And if that's not available to them, then they go into fight or flight mode. And if those two are unsuccessful, they tend to go into freeze mode, shutdown mode, which means they'd be in what they call high-level dorsal tone which means that 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 emergency brake is on really 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 tight and it's just learning this stuff's made so much sense to me because it really has 
made me realize that why the things or the things that I've been doing for a while now, why they've been working so well, because I've been engaging that that social engagement break and not the, you know, the emergency break. And, you know, I've talked a lot about how at horse expos and clinics and stuff in the last couple of years, someone will be having trouble with a horse and they'll hand me the lead rope and the horses just tend to soften right right away. And I had said that it's probably got something to do with my newfound, you know, lack of judgment, being a bit more present and having a bit of a different energy inside. But what I realized also from listening, hearing about this polyvagal stuff is most of those horses, when the owner hands me the lead rope, the first thing that horse does is come up to me and put their nose out and go to sniff and say hi. And I always go, hey, how you going? And I rub my hands on their muzzle like, hey, how's it going? So they are looking for social engagement and I was present enough to see it and I returned that social engagement thing there. And so that puts the brakes on. And I'm sure those horses at some point in time during that day, if, if let's say I'm at a horse expo and I have a horse like that come in, I'm sure at some point in the day they got the horse off the trailer if, if they hauled in that morning. I'm sure at some point in time that horse has tried to engage with the person because they were feeling a bit concerned, they wanted to have that social engagement, and the person either missed the opportunity, or they said, "Get back out of my space." Because I, you know, I used to be under the impression of that whole, uh, you know, dominance theory to where you know there's a herd of horses, and if there's ten horses, there's a, a number one, and he tells everybody from number two to number nine what to do, and then there's a number two, and he t- he. Number one tells him what to do, but number two tells everybody from three till ten what to do. And then there's a number three, and number one and number two tell him what to do, but he tells everybody else what to do. And that is just not the case, um, especially in the wild, especially in, in when there's a lot of times in, in domestic horses in small herds, there is a lack of resources. There's only so much hay and the, the water trough is in one corner. There's only one water trough or whatever, things like that. And so you tend to find horses fight more over those resources than they normally do in the wild. And there's a, an ethologist named Lucy Reese and she studies wild horses and she's reading some of her stuff is the one that may, it made me realise that some of this, some of this dogma that I was... Um, attached to is a bit incorrect but one of those dogma things is the whole myth of the personal space you can come you know i used to be under the impression that what the way you've got to do it is i can come into your space but you can't come into my space because i'm like number one horse in the herd and and that's just not true these days i'm a lot less concerned about personal space but more concerned about how they got in there if the horse stops his feet and reaches out with his nose and like, hey, how you going? I don't mind it being that close. Whereas if they they come in in a pushy sort of a way, then I might do something a little bit different about it. And, you know, if they come in in a pushy sort of way, a lot of times they are exhibiting juvenile behavior. So, you know, a, in a herd of horses, the only horse that that stands real close to another horse and kind of leans into them with their shoulder while looking away is a foal when he's around his mother. And so if a foal is in a herd, 
the mother allows things like that and other herd members tend to allow little things like bumping into you, ducking under your neck, all those sorts of things. But when that foal gets weaned, the mother starts to say, you can't do that anymore. And so the other herd members, instead of ducking under their neck, they'll go to duck under a horse's neck and the other horse will come in a little nip and say, hey, you've got to go around. And that is what Lucy Reese calls collision avoidance. Okay, and that's how they learn, like when the horses go, when the herd's going together as a herd. If you ever see a mare and a foal moving together, usually the foal's bumping into the mare. But that can't happen when they're big because they'll knock each other over. So if you ever watch a herd of horses move together, they move like a flock of birds or a school of fish. There's that energy bubble between each one of them. That's, that's what Lucy Reese calls collision avoidance. And I think... A lot of times what we are taught about that whole personal space thing, we use it too much and when horses are trying to socially engage, we deny that to them. And let's say doing groundwork, they want to come in and, and say hi and you say, no, you can't come in here. And then they want to run around and then we can't, you know, then we work them so, you know, you, that whole thing of move their feet and then offer them a place to rest sort of thing. So what you've basically done there is you've denied the social engagement break coming on. So that break doesn't come on. Then they are a bit concerned and they want to move around and they move around and you move around so much that they can't, you know, running away doesn't work. Then they tend to stop and they tend to go into slight freeze mode. And so I've really, really become aware of this this thing. And, and, you know, if you think back to the Mustang, Cody, the reason he went to sleep is because of that social engagement break well, like I, because I saw him like I said uh, the Dr. Daniel Siegel says attunement is a sense of being seen being heard feeling felt and getting gotten well when Cody turned his head I said I get you and when you get them that attunement thing you 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 say you see them you hear them you feel them and they get they feel felt and they get gotten you're getting what's going on with them that puts the brakes on and so i th- i realize a lot of the training that i've done in the past relied somewhat on that that dorsal vagal complex where they're kind of in a little bit of freeze mode but i really think that it's it's um it's not you know Using some of that is not all bad. You know, the, the scientist types will tell you if you use freeze mode at all, at some point in time they'll come unfrozen, they'll they'll go crazy. But I think that's if you only use freeze mode. But, you know, I got to thinking about this. I know a lot of horse trainers, like in the reining industry and stuff, that are really good horse trainers, and but they're not, they're not, you know, they're not, terribly friendly with their horses and let them rub their heads on whatever you know what I mean they're quite structured in what they do but their horses go around and their eyes are good their eyes are blinking their ears are working they're licking and chewing they act like they're quite happy but you know when they're handling their horses stuff there's not that social thing going on it really got me thinking about it then I realized these guys are very very talented and they're very good when they're training horses they teach a horse to do something little and when that horse starts to, to make an improvement or starts to shape up like it's the right thing, they release. And so what, what you are doing when you have good feel like that and good timing like that is you engage in the social engagement break. You're saying, yes, I saw that little change in you and I'm going to reward that. 
And I really think that is also a big part of the training. You can be training horses with with uh, pressure, and it's not necessarily a bad thing because if you are training in such small increments and noticing those, you know, the, think about the saying, reward the slightest try. Okay, that's what a part of that is. But if you're going to reward the slightest try, you have to notice the slightest try. And if you reward the slightest try, you are telling the horse, I noticed the slightest try, which means I'm in tune with you. We have attunement. You are being seen. You're being heard. You're feeling felt. You're getting gotten. And I really think that's a huge part of the whole thing. And, you know, I get I get some flack every once in a while on, say, social media uh, from the people who think they train purely positively. They're only, they're only positive reinforcement trainers and, and it's not possible to be purely positive. So that's a bit of a myth anyway. But they, you know, you think about the four quadrants of training. There's positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment. And two of those go hand in hand. So if you're using negative reinforcement, you're also using positive punishment. But if you're using positive reinforcement, you're also using negative punishment. So they're using punishment Anyway, they just, I don't think they understand that they're doing it. But the thing is, they get really bent out of shape if you are not using positive reinforcement. You know, you're a nasty person if, you are use, if you're not using positive reinforcement. But I really don't think it matters which of those quadrants you are using. I don't think it matters at all. What I believe is important is which of the vagal complexes you are working with. Are you only working in the dorsal vagal complex or are you working in the ventral vagal complex? Are you using the emergency brake? Are you using the shutdown brake? Or are your, the horse's brakes engaged because of social interaction? If you think about um, a horse can have high, let's say, ventral tone. So a horse can be, think about, so think about the brakes don't necessarily have to be on, like on, on. So think about, think about horses playing. So they would have high, relatively high sympathetic nervous system. They're activated, okay? But there's no fear or worry there. They're actually playing. And so they can be quite active and still quite relaxed at the same time. And that's what we're looking for in our riding horses. We want to have horses that are activated but relaxed. If you want to quote Nuno Oliveira, he says, your horse needs to be relaxed yet remain powerful. And that's really what you're doing with good riding is when you are getting activation that you're asking for, the way you're training it is you are also getting a lot of that social engagement break. So that's that's the big thing I'm on about these days is that whole social engagement break. I think that's, it explains, to me it explains everything, explains all the, all the things that I discovered in the last few years, like the Mustang and like with Sherlock and, and you know, basically Sherlock had no social engagement break as far as the just the little interactions with him. Now, I know the two guys who trained him and they would have trained him perfectly well where you release at the right time and all that sort of stuff. But I think horses like Sherlock are very, very, very sensitive. And I think those sensitive ones that can shut down easily. And it's just the same as humans. Um, humans that are very sensitive can go into shutdown mode quite easily. And I was listening to a, 
an audio book recently by a an addiction specialist named Gabor Mate. He's a Canadian guy, and he was talking about a lot of most all addiction. He says is comes from misattunement and closing and, and basically closing your heart down because you're sensitive and there there wasn't a way for that to be you know fully engaged when you were young or whatever so it's fascinating listening to that but i think it's much the same with these horses too and and i think the horses that shut down very easily like sherlock are very 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 sensitive and so i think we're going to wrap this up there but that's that's the big thing I'm on about these days is this this polyvagal theory. I think it's the I think it's the next evolution in in horse training, and I don't mean hey look I discover I, I invented something I didn't invent any of this stuff, but I think once you become aware of how polyvagal theory works, then you can really or you you can choose because I'm not I'm not saying anybody that that uses the um you know the the emergency brake to have horses stand still or not move around or not be dangerous i'm not saying they're bad but i think once you educate yourself to understanding these two states you can decide how much of each one you you want to use and you can also understand the fallout of choosing which one you use you know are, are there any bad repercussions and if you think about if i think about what i used to do i realize now that not not engaging that social engagement break early on so pro, you know using a bit of that other break tends to put a bit of a brace in a horse and then you've got to spend all your time riding them around getting the brace out. I mean, you think about anybody who trains horses to do things really, really well or, or high level stuff, you're always working on getting that resistance out of there. And what I'm realizing now, the resistance only comes in there if they start to get tense and go into a, a level of that, that um, you know, dorsal ventral complex, uh, dorsal vagal complex, that, 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 that freeze mode and if you can keep them mentally engaged and socially engaged with you I found all those braces aren't there and so I'm like you know I'm like a cat with 10 tails right now because I feel like I've discovered like the the meaning of life sort of thing and, and it really once you get your head around this it really really changes your outlook on um, how you interact with your horses. So I think I'm going to finish up there. That's a pretty long old podcast with a lot of stuff in it. But that's what I'm really excited about these days is this whole polyvagal theory. And it really makes me understand why all the connection stuff, getting that connection stuff first works so much better than what I used to do. So I hope you guys enjoyed that and we'll see you uh, next time on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.